So we've been working our way through the entire book of Revelation. We're in chapter 11 this morning. Last week we looked at chapter 10, beginning to study the interlude between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And this week we pick up where we left off, looking, however, only at chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. Initially, I had been thinking to preach chapter 10, verse 1, all the way through to 11, 14, in one sermon. And then I realized, well, I better do chapter 10 on its own. So then this week I was going to do chapter 11, verses 1 to 14. And then as I was studying more, I said, no, only the first three verses. (laughs) It would be way too much to try to fit into one sermon this larger passage that I just read for you in chapter 11, verses 1 to 14. Because it is very complex. It's so complex, in fact, that I think that these next few sermons in Revelation that I will preach, God willing, upon today and upon my return from Canada in a couple weeks, I think these next few sermons in Revelation will prove to be the most challenging set of sermons in terms of its subject matter and biblical text that I've ever had to prepare so far since I started preaching in 2009. And this is because of the sheer number of images and symbols in this passage and the complexity involved in deciphering where they all come from and what they all mean. It's no wonder then that one commentator says, this chapter is generally the subject of more interpretive disagreements than any other in the book of Revelation. So we'll end up covering Revelation 11, 1 to 14, which I just read for you in a series of at least three or four sermons. And I'm not entirely sure how many as yet, but at least three or four. And today we're looking only at the beginning of the chapter, Revelation 11, 1 to 3. Now we are in Revelation, but there are a couple of relevant passages in Daniel that I would like to read for you now. They're just relatively brief, a few verses. Daniel 9, 24 to 27, and Daniel 12, and verse 11. Listen as I read. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place or a most holy one, as the footnote says. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolated. And then Daniel chapter 12 and verse 11. 
And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1290 days. So, with these passages in mind from Daniel, on top of the usual reading and commentaries that I do on Revelation week by week, I've spent time this week in Daniel also, and reading not only the book of Daniel itself, and looking at the biblical text, but also trying to read commentaries on Daniel, and to understand how his prophecies, uh, to trying to understand his prophecies better, since they're obviously related somehow to Revelation 11, by way of the correspondence between the time periods mentioned in each passage. But what is the exact nature of the correspondence between the passages I read for you in Daniel and Revelation 11? Well, this is the million dollar question, so to speak. In Daniel, there is a prophecy about 1290 days and half a week. Surely related somehow to the 1260 days and half a week in Revelation, right? And of course, there's the 70 weeks prophecy, which I just read for you in Daniel 9, which many take to have an outstanding week as yet to be fulfilled. And those hold the assumption that there is still a week or, or a group of seven to be fulfilled hold that Revelation 11 is speaking about the fulfillment of that last week. And then there is the period of 42 months mentioned in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 2, which also happens to be the equivalent amount of time, not only to the 1260 days, but also to the siege of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, which is also clearly related somehow to Revelation 11. The nations will trample the holy city for 42 months. So, is Revelation 11 about the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70? Or is it about a yet future event? Or is Daniel, is, or is Daniel about a future event? Or AD 70? Or are we barking up the wrong tree and is Revelation 11 about something else entirely? And are Daniel and Revelation unrelated except by coincidental mention of similar time periods like what is going on here and I hope you can begin to see why I'm only doing three verses this morning instead of this whole section because we haven't even begun to talk about the two olive trees and the two lampstands and the beast from the bottomless pit and whatnot right so what is going on here in this passage as I've asked you to do before in this revelation series please again gird up the loins of your mind as this will be another technical and complex sermon, and unavoidably so, as this is a technical and complex chapter. I will try to break down this complex passage as simply as I can, however, and show you what is here in Revelation 11, 1 to 3, and how it relates to Daniel. That's what we're trying to do today. All right? Now to start with, here's a simple, I believe, I think, non-controversial, an obvious point. The subject matter of Revelation 11 is events surrounding Jerusalem. Look at verse 8. The city that we are talking about, the holy city, the great city, is, quote, 
the city where their Lord was crucified. Therefore, we are talking about events surrounding Jerusalem. And the first question then that we have to ask of the text and that we have to get an answer for is this. Is Jerusalem literal in Revelation 11 or is Jerusalem symbolic? We are talking about Jerusalem. So is it literal or symbolic in Revelation 11? Is Jerusalem, the holy city in Revelation 11, intended to convey the literal earthly Jerusalem located at roughly 31 degrees east, or sorry, 31 degrees north and 35 degrees east in terms of longitude and latitude? The earthly, physical, literal city. Or is Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 11 a symbol like so much else in Revelation? If it is literal and earthly, then is the temple which John is to measure the literal earthly temple that was destroyed in AD 70? Or is it a literal earthly temple to be rebuilt in the end times? Well, let's play out some possibilities in our imagination. We still don't, we still don't have the answers to these things yet, so let's think them through. First, if Revelation 11 refers to literal earthly, first century Jerusalem and the measuring of the temple that was destroyed in AD 70, then the theological message of Revelation 11 would be that God will protect the temple and the people who worship there and it will be their witness which overcomes the unbelief of the nations since in Revelation 11, it is the temple there and the worshipers who are preserved and vindicated. Moreover, this interpretive possibility would put all of the events in Revelation 11 in the first century. And much of what is described in Revelation 11 did not literally happen in the first century. So we would have a strange mix of literal and figurative together in Revelation 11, if this is the way we're supposed to take it. And the theological message would be that God is preserving the Judaism connected with the first century temple and the witness of the literal, earthly, first century Jews who were connected with that temple. And that they and their temple would prevail in spite of the opposition of the nations. Now, if you know your Bible well, and you know world history, you should see many problems with this particular way of interpreting Revelation 11. After all, the temple that stood in Jerusalem in the first century was destroyed as an act of judgment upon the unbelieving Jews of Jesus' day who rejected their Messiah. As John says in his Gospel account, he came unto his own, but his own received him not. And the Jews were not vindicated after the 42-month siege in the first century, as we would, uh, or sorry, in contrast to what we would have expected if that's what Revelation 11 was about. So no, Revelation 11 does not refer to literal first century earthly Jerusalem and the measuring of the temple that was then extant prior to A.D. 70. That's not what Revelation 11 is about. Now let's consider secondly, 
Could Revelation 11 be referring to literal, earthly, future Jerusalem? And the measuring of a literal, earthly, future temple, which is to be rebuilt there at a future date. This is the perspective of many good Bible-believing Christians called dispensationalists, with whom the Reform have some significant disagreements, but nevertheless can recognize as dear brothers in Christ. One of these men, explaining his dispensational understanding, says about the temple in Revelation 11, this refers to a rebuilt temple, yet future in our time, or to our time, often called the Tribulation Temple. According to dispensationalism, Revelation 11 is describing a time yet future to us when there is a literal earthly temple built in literal earthly Jerusalem. In this view, quote, the worshipers are faithful believing Jews of the tribulation period who will have reinstituted the sacrifices and rituals of the Mosaic economy. End quote. As J. Hampton Keithley III writes, who is a dispensational theologian who graduated from the epicenter of dispensational thought, which is Dallas Theological Seminary, and Hampton Keithley pastored for 28 years prior to going to be with the Lord. He says, the tribulation will be back under the Old Testament economy. End quote. So if this view is correct, then the theological message of Revelation 11 is that God protects and sanctions Jewish worshipers who have reinstituted animal sacrifices and the Jewish calendar and vindicates their representatives, the two witnesses who are killed for their testimony. Now, in case you haven't picked it up intuitively, this problem, pardon me, this perspective is fraught with serious problems. Imagine I told you that next week, in honor of Jesus, we were having a sacrifice of a literal lamb here at CRBC. You, you would, I hope, rightly oppose me and refuse to follow me in that direction. This is because it would be wrong and counter to the development of the biblical storyline to go back to ceremonial types and shadows now that Christ has come, even if we knew full well and understood that they referred to Christ, and even if they were offered up in worship to Him. It is simply not honoring to Christ nor biblically permissible to reestablish the Old Testament system of worship. But central to dispensationalism and the eschatology or doctrine of end times associated with it, this is exactly what the Jewish people will do toward the end of all things. And as the argument goes, quote, the reason the times of the Gentiles will come to an end is so that the nation of Israel will be free to serve God under the messianic economy of the millennial kingdom, during which, within that way of thinking, animal sacrifices will continue. 
It is God's jealousy over his chosen nation which will bring this about. Woe to the nations who fail to appreciate God's zeal for Israel. End quote. So in this view, God wants and is working towards Israel again worshiping him in the end times in a literal temple in literal earthly Jerusalem and to begin to offer animal sacrifices there understanding that Christ is the fulfillment of those things but the way that we observe the Lord's table in honor of Christ according to his institution and appointment within dispensationalism the understanding is that believing Jews will again return to that system of sacrifices in honor of Christ Supposedly, according to dispensationalism, it would be unthinkable that I and we here at CRBC would do such things, reinstitute such ceremonies, but only because we're Gentiles. When the time has come and the Jews organize a rebuilding of the temple and a reinstitution of that system and an ordaining of priests, it will supposedly be legitimate. Now, can you see that this presupposes that there are two peoples of God? His Jewish people and His Gentile people. And there are rules for one and there are rules for another. And there's a plan for one and there's a plan for another. And God is doing one thing with one people and God is doing another thing with another people. The scripture is clear against this view. Listen to Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, which I'll read in full. Because it's crucial that we hear God himself speak to this issue. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, you, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you, Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, implicitly of Israel, with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So according to sound principles of biblical interpretation, or hermeneutics is the technical term, we must not interpret a less clear passage like Revelation 11. And can we admit that that's less clear than Ephesians 2? We must not interpret a less clear passage like Revelation 11 in such a way that contradicts a very clear passage like Ephesians 2. Rather, we should interpret a less clear passage like Revelation 11 in light of a more clear passage like Ephesians 2. So we let the more clear passages speak to the less clear passages. And when we do that, we must rule out the possibility that God endorses, protects, and vindicates the rebuilding of a literal temple and worship that supposedly goes on there, whether Gentiles do it or whether Jews do it. There aren't two rules, two sets of rules for two different people groups, two programs of redemption, two destinies. There's one people of God comprised of believing Jews and Gentiles who are together the true Israel of God. Another name for this group of people is the church. And so this is obviously not, we're not talking about like, if a church has a building project, God doesn't sanction the building of, or the, the construction of a building to worship it. But we're talking about rebuilding a temple, which is to be supposedly the special place of the presence of God, the way the temple was in the old covenant system. And the, all the accoutrements and ceremonies associated with that temple. God does not endorse that. God is not going to vindicate people who do that, which would be the theological message of Revelation 11, if what Revelation 11 was about was the rebuilding of a literal earthly temple and the vindication and protection of the worshipers there. So after considering the first two possibilities, of how we're to understand the events surrounding Jerusalem in Revelation 11. We're forced to say that the city of Jerusalem and the temple described in Revelation 11 cannot be literal earthly first century Jerusalem and its temple, nor can it be literal earthly future Jerusalem and its temple for the reasons already given at length. So how are we to take the reference to Jerusalem and to the temple in Revelation 11 then. Well, against a very literal dispensational reading in which, again, just to summarize, as, as John Wolford says, the great city of 11.8 is identified as the literal city of Jerusalem. The time periods are taken as literal time periods. The two witnesses are interpreted as two individuals. The three and a half days are taken literally. The earthquake is a literal earthquake. The 7,000 men who are slain by the earthquake are 7,000 individuals who die in the catastrophe. The death of the witnesses is literal, as are their resurrection and ascension. End quote. Against a very literal reading of Revelation 11 like this, one commentator summarizes Donald Gray Barnhouse and the broad contours of his non-dispensational interpretations of this chapter. The temple here is figuratively used of the faithful portion of the Church of Christ. 
The holy city is always in the apocalypse, or revelation, the title of the church. The two witnesses represent the elect church of God and the witness which she bears concerning God. The 1260 days constitute the period during which, although the church is trodden underfoot, will not cease to prophesy. Concerning the war of the beast against them, we are told the whole vision is symbolical and the intention is to convey the idea that the church, in her witness for God, will experience opposition from the power of Satan, and so on and so on, end quote. Yes, Barnhouse and I and other non-dispensational interpreters think that's exactly what's going on here in Revelation chapter 11. What happened in chapter 10? John was given a little book to eat and to prophesy. What's happening in chapter 11? The church, the true Israel of God, the true Jews, comprised of believing Jews and Gentiles together, the true Jerusalem, has eaten and is prophesying. They are being opposed by the power of Satan, but prophesying anyway. God ultimately protects and vindicates His church, so that, as Martin Luther said in his old hymn, even if they let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, their opponents will find this, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Revelation 11 is doing what previous chapters of Revelation have done. And it is using symbolism drawn from real, literal, historical events and biblical passages describing said events to make theological points. And therefore, Revelation 11 is not making points about literal Jerusalem any more than previous chapters were making points about literal Egypt or literal Babylon or whatever else. These are symbols for the theological truths being conveyed. Expanding on this point of view, let's now look at the prophecies of Daniel and their relationship to Revelation 11 in non-dispensational interpretation. I will remind you from the passage I read at the beginning that Daniel prophesies in chapter 9 about 70 weeks or 70 sevens because that's what the word literally means which our ESV has translated as weeks. It's sevens. So 70 sevens or 70 groups of seven. Now this would add up to 490 if you multiply 70 times seven. And most scholars, dispensational or non-dispensational, take this as 490 years. And most scholars agree, dispensational and non-dispensational, that at least the first 69 sevens, or weeks, have already been fulfilled. 483 years from the time of Daniel's prophecy brings you pretty close to Jesus' earthly lifetime, death, resurrection, and ascension. However you do the calculation, all right, and people are divided about when does the period begin and end and whatnot. However you do the calculation, most scholars understand this, the events surrounding Christ's life, death, and resurrection to be the end point of the first 69 sevens, or the first 69 weeks. Now, interestingly, 
Dispensationalism typically has the final seven separated in time from the first 69 by approximately, at this point, 2,000 years and counting because it's still yet future to us. So if the first 69 ended around the time of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, then the final seven is separated by at least roughly 2,000 years or so and counting. And dispensationalism has an elaborate schema of what will happen in the end times based on an understanding that the final week or the final seven is yet to come. So any talk of three and a half years, 42 months, right? Or three and a half days, which would be half a week, or 1260 days, which would be three and a half years, right? All of which are in Revelation 11, is gonna set dispensational bells ringing, right? And dispensationalists will assume that Revelation 11 is telling us about a future event and is related to the final week of Daniel's prophecies. And frankly, I can understand that entirely. If you go into Revelation 11 with the assumption that there is a future seven to be fulfilled, and then you read about three and a half years, right? 42 months, 1260 days. And then you read about three and a half days, half a week or half a seven. It makes complete sense to assume that what you are seeing in Revelation is indeed a partial fulfillment of that final week or that final seven that you expect from your reading of Daniel to see at a future time in human history. Now dispensationalists differ among themselves whether Revelation 11 is referring to the first half of the remaining seven or the last half of the remaining seven. But all dispensationalists agree that Revelation 11 is dealing with the 70th seven of Daniel's prophecy from Daniel chapter 9. Now, my objection to such a schema is that there's no compelling reason to, sell, to separate the first 69 sevens from the 70th seven approximately 2,000 years or more. And it seems much more compelling to understand the 70th seven as coming either immediately after or relatively soon after or at least causally related to the 69th seven. Again, as I said earlier, however you do the calculations, 483 years, which is 69 sevens, gets you remarkably close to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection if you do those calculations from Daniel's prophecy onward. Alright? It makes a lot of sense to me and, and others as well. I'm just speaking in the first person. That the 70th seven will be relatively imminent after the events pertaining to the 69th seven have been fulfilled. And non-dispensational interpreters believe that the 70th seven was in fact fulfilled in the first century in the first Jewish-Roman war, which lasted, can you guess how long? Seven years. A.D. 66 to A.D. 73. And the temple was destroyed. Well, first of all, Jerusalem was besieged, and then the temple was destroyed after, can you guess how many months? 
42 months. In Daniel's words, putting an end to sacrifice and offering. Now this is not an exposition of Daniel 9 this morning. We're, we're still in Revelation. So I'm not trying to show you all the nuances and all the specificities of Daniel's prophecy. But I am trying to show you but that by the time of the writing of Revelation, which was the mid-90s of the first century, non-dispensational interpreters believed that Daniel's 70 weeks, all 70 of them, were already fulfilled. There had already been the 70th week. There had already been the putting of an end to sacrifices and offerings and a strong covenant broken halfway through the week, etc. All these things that are loaded into Daniel chapter 9. Moreover, the 1290 days described in Daniel 12 from when the abomination of desolation is set up to the end of the war and a new era in which the blessings of the new covenant are ushered in had already been fulfilled by the time that the writing of Revelation happened in the mid-90s of the first century. And these things were fulfilled in the events pertaining to the first Jewish-Roman war. So, our understanding is this, that Daniel was writing about what would literally happen to literal, earthly, first century Jerusalem and the literal earthly temple in Jerusalem. That's what Daniel was writing about. And what he wrote about was all fulfilled in the first century, in the first Jewish-Roman war, with the 70th seven happening in AD 66 to AD 73, following, admittedly, not chronologically, but causally, from the events of the 69th week, which was Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. For as we know, the destruction of the temple was an act of God's judgment upon the Jews who rejected their own Messiah. So in Revelation then, we're not reading about the 70th week of Daniel, but we are drawing on the imagery and the symbolism of the events related to Daniel's 70th week. As there was a Jerusalem which was literally surrounded by the nations for 42 months, or 1260 days, approximately 25 years prior to the writing of Revelation in the first Jewish-Roman war. So there is a Jerusalem still in the mid-90s of the first century, which is symbolically surrounded by the nations again. The 42 months or the 1260 days is symbolic language intended to bring back to our minds events pertaining to the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy so that we are able to discern that that is what is being alluded to and referred to in Revelation chapter 11. So just like there is an Israel and an Egypt, so to speak, in Revelation chapter 9, and God plagues Egypt without plaguing Israel in Revelation chapter 9, just as there is an Israel and a Babylon in Revelation chapter 9, and God uses Babylon as his instruments of judgment. So in Revelation 11, there is a Jerusalem and a Rome, 
And as Jerusalem was besieged in real, literal history, so there will be a symbolic besieging again throughout redemptive history as we await the return of Christ. As the people of God are surrounded by a world unbelieving and hostile to our message and our worship. The language of 42 months and 1260 days is intended to convey to our minds the allusion to the Jewish-Roman War. The same way that the language of plagues in Revelation chapter 9 is intended to convey to our minds the allusion back to the ten plagues narrative and the exodus from Egypt. Revelation 9 is not making it's not speaking about the same events as contained in Exodus. Likewise, neither is Revelation 11 speaking about the same events contained in Daniel chapter 9. But what's happening here is that there's an allusion back to previous redemptive history, previous literal historical events. And these are co-opted and used symbolically in Revelation to convey to us theological truths. That we're in Israel and there's still an Egypt out there. That we're in Israel and there's still a Babylon out there. That we're in Israel and there's still a Rome out there. And that we may, be, we may expect that God will plague the Egyptians, but spare us. We may expect that God will use the Babylonians in judgment. We may expect that we will be surrounded by the armies of Rome, as it were. These are the things that Revelation is telling us. As opposed to making points about these literal earthly nation states. Rome, Egypt. Babylon, Israel, so forth. With all this in mind, let me try to make plain, as we've covered a lot today, what dispensationalists, pardon me, what non-dispensationalists such as I believe to be the theological message of Revelation 11 in view of the allusion to Daniel. To reiterate, Daniel was prophesying about what would happen to literal earthly Jerusalem and the literal earthly temple. And what he wrote about was all fulfilled in the first century with the 70th 7th happening in AD 66 to 73. Following not chronologically but causally from the events of the 69th week. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Revelation 11 is doing what previous chapters of Revelation have done and they're alluding back to real historical events, but using them symbolically for the present situation of the church. Therefore, Revelation 11 is not making points about literal Jerusalem any more than Revelation is making points about literal Egypt or literal Babylon or literal Rome. But these are symbols for the theological truths being conveyed. The theological message and tune in here if you have not been able to follow all along. Let me make this plain. The theological message of Revelation 11 is that we Christians will be at times before Christ's second coming surrounded by the Romans, so to speak, as Jerusalem once literally was. We may expect that our job to eat and to prophesy as God gave the job to John in, Rome, in Revelation chapter 10. We may ex expect that our job to eat and prophesy will not be easy to fulfill, but will be indeed, in some sense, bitter for our stomachs. For the very reason that we will have to prophesy well being surrounded by the Romans and trampled underfoot, so to speak. 
as we will see in more detail in future weeks. The message of Revelation 11 is actually very encouraging in spite of its teaching that we are surrounded by the Romans. Because here's one big difference between what happened in the first Jewish Roman War and what happens in Revelation 11. In the first Jewish Roman War, Jerusalem was overcome and the temple destroyed. In Revelation 11, there is an allusion back to the Jewish-Roman War and the siege and the destruction of the temple. But Revelation does not have the Romans overcoming Jerusalem, but Revelation has Jerusalem overcoming Rome. The whole book of Revelation ends with Jerusalem here on earth and Rome nowhere to be found. A temple here on earth and the Romans nowhere to be found. It is the two witnesses who come out of the temple to prophesy, who are raised and ascend to heaven. And the Romans are gathered out of Christ's kingdom, together with all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. So Revelation 11 alludes to the events of the first Jewish-Roman war, but it reverses the outcome in a way that would be encouraging to the Christians to whom Revelation was written, and in a way that would be encouraging to us all these years later. Though God has not promised that the earthly city of Jerusalem will be preserved, though God has not promised that the earthly temple will be preserved, though God has not promised that the old covenant will last forever, these things are fading away and becoming obsolete according to Hebrews 8. Though God has not promised that any of these shall last, he, is, he has promised that there is a Jerusalem which shall ever be preserved. God has promised that there is a temple which shall ever be preserved. There is a new covenant which is an everlasting covenant of grace which shall never become obsolete. These things pertain to the church comprised of believing Jews and believing Gentiles together. We are the everlasting Jerusalem. We are the temple of God, living stones, as 1 Peter 2, 5 says. We are partakers of Christ's everlasting covenant. So though we are a Jerusalem of sorts, surrounded by the Romans, though we are a temple of sorts, trampled underfoot, rest assured that God sees and knows us, and that the times are decreed both for our downtroddenness and our eventual exaltation and vindication. This is the theological message of Revelation 11 as it relates to the prophecies of Daniel. We will eventually get to the imagery of measuring the temple and its relationship to Ezekiel and the two witnesses, the olive trees and the lampstands and their relation to Zechariah and the resurrection and ascension of the witnesses in the cloud and all else in Revelation 11. 1 to 14. If God wills, we'll get there. I'll continue plodding away through this chapter when I return from Canada, God willing, but one thing at a time. Today, just understand that Daniel was prophesying about what would happen to literal earthly Jerusalem and its temple. Revelation 11 is merely alluding to those events with a view to getting us to think in the same categories of that Jewish-Roman war. But Revelation 11 reverses the outcome for the encouragement of the church, the true Israel of God, 
and reminds us that though we may be surrounded by the Romans, God will preserve us and vindicate us. And in the end, it will be Jerusalem and not Rome, which remains standing, which wins the war symbolically presented in these terms.